Welcome to the Absite Smackdown Podcast. We'll talk clinical scenarios, interesting Absite facts, and interesting general surgery knowledge. Now, let's get to it. Welcome back to the Absite Smackdown Podcast. And today, Jessica and I are going to explore some of the most foolish Absite related facts. In fact, we like to think of these as the top five dumbest Absite facts. Hey guys, it's Jessica the host for Upside Smackdown podcast. I'm just really excited today to do such a fun topic. It's interesting and silly and we get to poke fun at not just ourselves, but pretty much all study guides. So as always, I'm excited to be here with Dr. Kashmir because any time with him is a pleasure. Number one on our list of dumbest absite facts. Well, before we even get into the list, let me share a couple things with you. Even though these are on the list of what we consider the dumbest, most foolish, or least useful te- testable facts for the absite. It doesn't mean you don't have to know them. The test is what it is, and these all make the absite Smackdown review book and many other classic review books. So before we even get into the list of what we kind of nicknamed the dumbest absite facts, guess what? Still need to know them. Coming in at number one on the list, it's the indications for liver metastasis resection. You know, this is one of the funniest ones to me because every time I study or teach for the absite, I think of this fact. What it is, is basically the indications uh, to do a liver uh, metastectomy or metastectomy. Uh, and the indication is, do the liver met resection, quote, if the patient can tolerate it, unquote. It's kind of a funny fact. I mean, what procedure do we do for patients that they're not going to tolerate? Is there any elective procedure that we say, hey, signed you up for this procedure, don't think you're going to tolerate it. It's sort of bad judgment to do that. And that makes this one of the most foolish facts. Jessica, what do you think? Can they tolerate it? I mean, it just seems so silly to me. Obviously, if a patient isn't up for surgery, then you have to use your best judgment. But at the same time, what is your other option? What surgical options do you have? So this is definitely one of the facts that just seems a little off or redundant to me. So I don't know. That's just my opinion. Well, it turns out that there may be more behind this fact than meets the eye. In fact, uh, what they what they may mean or what I like to think is meant uh, in our review books when we talk about this is that sometimes in cirrhotic livers especially, you can only resect so much liver. The parenchym as a whole is dysfunctional. You know, in fact, you need very little functioning liver to do all the things the liver needs to do, like make sure your mental status is okay and allow uh, your INR to be okay and all the different things the liver needs to do. You actually need surprisingly little of it. However, in patients who are cirrhotic, they cannot tolerate uh, uh, resections that are substantial. And so you have to use some judgment to say, hey, this metastasis is this large, I'm going to have to take this much of the liver, the patient may not tolerate it. So I think in some ways, this is a deceptively simple fact, but on the face of it, it just sounds so foolish. Quote, if they can tolerate it, that's one reason to go ahead and do the metastectomy. I mean, really? The Absite Smackdown podcast is based on the best-selling review book, Absite Smackdown. The only Absite review with an entire video review course included. Visit AbsiteSmackdown.com and pick it up today. 
coming in next on the list is a very different fact from the first, and that's number two, the classic saying, quote, osis bleeds and itis perfs, unquote. Well, what we're talking about here are diverticulae, and as you know, as we get older, blood vessels, the sites where blood vessels enter and leave the colon progressively weaken. And we get these outpouchings in those areas, and these little outpouchings are called diverticulae. Don't need to tell you that. But what's interesting is the classic fact that diverticulosis bleeds. So if you have a lower GI bleed and it's only a diverticulae, it's diverticulosis. Itis, diverticulitis, perforates. So if you have a patient with a pericolonic abscess, that's because they have diverticulitis. You know, is it true? Yeah, it's true. That's how it works. But to me, really the, the fact behind this fact is that the patient has diverticulae and these are manifestations of it. You either get a localized infection, which can cause localized peritonitis and can give you that pericolonic abscess or worse. Yeah, that's diverticulitis. If you have diverticulosis without that pericolonic infection, patient shows up with a GI bleed and it's from the diverticulae that's diverticulosis. It's like, yeah, these are two different disease scenarios and they're treated differently, but really it's all owing to the diverticulae that are there. So is it a fact? Yes. But on the face of it, to me, it just sounds almost foolish to separate those in our heads so distinctly, although we do it all the time. So is this the worst of the bunch of facts? No, but to my mind, this is all owing to diverticulae. One is where they're infected and we do a certain thing and we look at the Hinchy classification and we, you know, we've changed it so much, the treatment of this disease, uh, diverticulitis with perforation. Uh, now in the acute care surgery uh, world, it's, it's just changed so much. Uh, and diverticulosis uh, being the one that uh, bleeds. Sure, all that's true, but really the, the, these are ramifications of diverticulae. Jessica, any thoughts on this classic osis bleeds and itis perfs? Well, with this one, it's kind of difficult because it seems to be the original cause is one thing and then it deviates into just a slightly different form of the original issue. And so it's just really breaking it down. And I don't know, I just it seems almost unnecessary because it all goes back around to the single cause. But again, I'm not the professional in this. I do see why you would have picked this fact, though, and I definitely agree with you. Next up on the list is one that seems redundant. Sometimes we say funny things in medicine, and these are classics that are funny to me or pet, pet, you know, sort of favorites of mine. One of them is the word, for example, etiology. Etiology is the study of the cause, and yet we use it all the time in medicine to mean the cause. Etiology is the study of the cause of something, where people use it all the time to just mean the cause. Well, what's the etiology of this disease? Well, yeah, but really we're talking about what's the cause of this disease. And then there's another great one, like liver cirrhosis. Do we really see cirrhosis anywhere else? It's almost redundant to say liver cirrhosis, but we do it all the time. Well, here's one in that same vein, coming in at number three, watershed area at the splenic flexure is vulnerable to ischemia. Well, that's the same thing twice. We're talking here about Griffith's point, and the way we write this in review books is really pretty redundant. The watershed area at the splenic flexure, aka Griffith's point, is vulnerable to ischemia. Well, that's what a watershed area is. Probably one of the funniest facts to me, it's redundant, it always kind of makes me laugh, 
And I guess that's the kind of comedy you appreciate when you've read too many review books. But there you go. Jessica, what do you think about this maybe redundant fact that watershed area at the splenic flexure, this Griffith's point, is vulnerable to ischemia? Any thoughts about it? Honestly, the redundancy of this kind of reminds me how we say tuna fish. I mean, it's a kind of fish. We don't go around saying chicken bird or steak mammal. And so I'm not sure why <laughs> we have to say liver cirrhosis because, I mean, like you said, cirrhosis only happens in the liver. And so just these small little things where, like you said, it's redundant. The Absite Smackdown Podcast. Visit the Smackdown at AbsightSmackdown.com. And coming in at number four, some facts that are almost misleading in some ways. And that's why I think this is probably some of the dumbest or most foolish absite facts. This one centers around the colon. And we teach residents over and over that the colon absorbs five liters of water per day. It's dramatic. And its primary job is to absorb water. And so when you're asked on the test, hey, what's the primary, what uh, area of the bowel absorbs the most water or something like that? Well, your mind immediately goes to colon because it's dramatic. It's five liters of water per day and its primary job is to absorb water. But guess what? The nasty little fact that flips things on its head is that the small bowel, the jejunum, actually absorbs 90% of water that's absorbed. And that kind of makes sense. The colon gets the leftovers of everything, including water. But we don't typically think of it that way because of fact number four that makes us feel the colon absorbs so much and it's so dramatic and it's five liters a day. But guess what? The jejunum beats it out. So Jessica, what do you think about that one? I actually remember when I posted this fact on our daily absite fact and remembering like that I thought it was weird because I also thought it was the colon and learning that it was the jejunum, which is a weird word to me. I just thought it was really interesting because I feel like even common knowledge wise, most people think of the colon. The Absite Smackdown Podcast, bringing you the best for your absite review. Last on the list is Fothergill's sign, and this is filed under the obscure, almost historic interest only, signs that we all learn. Uh, they are important when we do physical exam to uh, kind of have a sense of what's going on from our differential diagnosis, but under the heading of let's get real, let's talk about Fothergill's sign. This is related to abdominal wall hematoma, and when a lesion in the abdominal wall is more prominent, when the abs are clenched, that really tells you that there's something in the abdominal wall. Now, sometimes it's a hematoma uh, from Lovenox or some similar, you know, sub-Q injection. It can be other things too. Other sub-Q injections can give it. So, Father Gill sign is typically associated with a lesion that's more prominent when you kind of sit up or clench the abs because it makes it more pronounced. And that can be an abdominal wall hematoma or a soft uh, a tissue mass in the abdominal wall. But the headline is uh, Fothergill sign and what it means. And what makes this fact so funny to me is that this isn't really how we typically find abdominal wall hematomas. You know, medicine will consult this on a patient with a large abdominal wall hematoma and they've typically gotten a CT or the patient's morbidly obese and you can't really see it too well from the outside anyway. Really, Father Gill's sign is one of those signs that you're never going to hang your hat on for which problem the patient has. But we teach it, we learn it, it's useful, it kind of gives us an idea. But really, in the modern day, you don't see Father Gill's sign written in many places, even in patients who are known to have 
Abdallah Wal Himatoma. And for that reason, although it's something to know, we're never we're not going to say don't learn it. It's still tested. It's still in the uh, the books, if you will, the review books, like uh, Absite Smackdown. But come on, let's get real. This is not how we typically discover a patient has an abdominal wall hematoma. Maybe looking backward on it, we say, oh yeah, that was Father Gill's sign. But it's one of those uh, remnants of physical diagnosis before we really had more effective and efficient tests. So those are the five that we came up with. And Jessica, any thoughts about Father Gill's sign and kind of these uh, historic interest signs? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? So with the Father Guild sign, I just feel like it's helpful maybe in the old school way before we had technology and CT scans and everything that it was a good way to deduce things. And I think there's a lot of stuff like that that maybe we don't use as much anymore. But if you were to go overseas to a third world country or if you're a military medic or something like that, that those kinds of things could still be helpful. And yeah, we may not use them every day in today's world because we don't have to we've evolved past it but just having that base common knowledge seems sort of helpful to me okay everyone well we hope you enjoyed the five dumbest or sometimes least useful or misleading absite facts we hope you enjoyed uh kind of thinking about those with us today those are some of my personal favorites and it doesn't mean that we don't learn them it just means as we read it we tend to be uh, critical readers and critical thinkers and we say oh come on and i think there's a value to that even as we study for our absite reviews again whether it's doing uh, the liver metastectomy and thinking to yourself well uh, you know i should only do this if the patient can tolerate it well of course or whether it's a thinking that the watershed area at the splenic flexure, Griffith's point, is vulnerable to ischemia. Well, of course it is. That's kind of redundant. Or whether it's the colon absorbs so much water, it's five liters a day, but really the jejunum is doing most of the job. Any of those things. We hope you enjoyed thinking about some of the five funniest, silliest, dumbest absite facts with us today. Have a great day. Good luck in your absite prep. Uh, we hope that absite smackdown can help you out with it hashtag absite smackdown guys thanks again for tuning in for another session with me and dr david and like he said hashtag absite smackdown thanks for listening to the absite smackdown podcast visit us at absite smackdown.com for more great absite facts